Welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins. This is episode 215. I want to finish our series from Advent, Christmas, Epiphany uh, for this year. And I know it's a little late. I, I got a sinus infection, throat infection, bronchitis, had a bad cough. It was ugly for a couple weeks. So I, I couldn't really record without making a bunch of wheezing and coughing and noise. So I took a little bit of time off. Um, so this comes a couple weeks late. I've got to get it in before Lent starts. But uh, I do want to do, I uh, do want to cover the last message in our, in our series from this Advent Christmas Epiphany season. And, and for that, I, I want to turn to a place in the scripture that isn't typically considered an epiphany message. Epiphany is that season in which we celebrate the, the arrival, the visit of the Magi, the wise men. <clears throat> and so there's a story at, at the end of Luke chapter 2 that gets left out because it, it's not about the killing of the innocents. It's not about the visit of the Magi, the reaction of Herod, the, fl- the flight to Egypt or any of that. And so it, it kind of gets forgotten. And, and if we preach it, we preach it in a different context for a different reason, um, having to do with children. And, and that's not the context of this story either. The story contains a lot of, a lot of messaging from Luke and, and, a, and, and very important messaging, significant. And so I want to treat the story as the last in our series for this holiday season because it's the last account that ends with and Mary pondered these things and treasured them in her heart. Uh, Four times the Bible says that all here in the birth and childhood narratives of Christ. And this is the last time. So uh, it kind of ties a bow on Everything else we've said about, I want you to have a Mary, M-A-R-Y, Christmas. It's the perspective of Mary. Luke's, Luke's narrative is done by interviewing people who knew Jesus personally. Luke didn't apparently know Christ personally, but he's still alive when people who knew Jesus are alive. And so Luke apparently interviews them because he gets all of these perspectives from from people who were there when he wasn't. And so it's a very interesting collection of stories that he sends to his friend Theophilus and, and narrates the life of Christ. And this is one of those places. So we're going to read in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, way down toward the end of this second chapter of Luke, where we find the traditional Christmas story, then the story of, of uh, Simeon the prophet, Anna the prophetess, those who meet Jesus in the court of the temple, and then this story. <clears throat> now, 12 years have elapsed between Luke 2.40 and Luke 2.41. 12 years. And From the end of Luke chapter 2 to the beginning of Luke chapter 3, about 18 more are going to lapse. So this story alone 
in the narrative of the Bible tells us about the childhood of Jesus. It's the only childhood story of Jesus that we have in the Christian canon. Now, you've probably heard that there are a couple of other childhood tales, I'll call them that on purpose, from books outside of the Christian canon that are about the childhood of Jesus, and they tell these far-out miracle stories. Those books were excluded from the Christian scripture, the canon, what we call the New Testament, because they were magic stories, because they focused on things that weren't the heart of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They're not lost. The lost gospel of Thomas isn't lost. It's been there forever, and people have known about it forever. It was never lost. It was excluded because it was written 400 years after Christ by people in Alexandria, Egypt, with a mystical agenda. It's not the gospel. It's a story of magic. And so those things are left out. With their exclusion, this alone stands as the only childhood narrative from the entire life of Christ. It is the perspective of his mother. It has to be. She's the only one who would know these things. Just like she's the only one who would know who came to the side of the manger the night Jesus was born. She's the only one who would know that they were excluded from staying at the inn. So this is Mary's story. <clears throat> it goes like this. Luke 2.41 Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up as a family to the festival according to their custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware that he had stayed. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled for a complete day. Then they began looking for him among their friends and relatives. When they could not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was astonished at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He responded. Didn't you know I would have to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother pondered all these things and treasured them in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So the story starts out benignly enough. It's a calendar citation. Every year, at like good Jews, Jesus' family went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, the feast of the Passover. The holiday begins earlier in the week. It culminates with 
a Friday night Seder, a Passover meal, which really isn't much of a meal. It's some herbs, bitter herbs, a bone. <laughs> you don't eat the bone. It just sits on your plate as a, as a symbol of hunger. Um, there are a couple of other things. There's not much of a meal. They're all symbolic things. Eaten, standing up. Because the Passover meal commemorates fleeing from Egypt. So if they ate before they left, they had to eat in a hurry. It's kind of an interesting symbolic little time. It's not the biggest meal of the week. Then the next day is the Shabbat, the Sabbath, commemorating the Passover and celebrating the formation of the nation of Israel. Before that, they had been a family, a group of sons and their father. When they came into the promised land, they became a nation. And that process started when they left Egypt. So it, it's the biggest holiday for Jewish people in the calendar. It is their identity. So it was Jesus' family's custom to go to Jerusalem, to the, to the heart. It'd be like going to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. They're going to the place where the party happens. The, the place with the most meaning. The temple is there. God's house is there. They probably have family and friends there that they stay with. One particular year, the year he was 12. Now, that is an important fact for you to know. There's background to being a Jewish boy and being 12. Jewish public school education was over after your 12th year. So once you turn 12 as a boy, there were two tracks you could take. Now girls, their education is over. At the age of 12, they're done. They go and learn home craft from their mothers. The boys at the age of 12 took one of two tracks. They either were accepted into yeshiva school for further education because they had promise. They could write. They could do math. They could speak. They had acuity with the scriptures. They might become uh, an accountant. They might become a lawyer. They might become a teacher. They might become a priest, a rabbi. But at the age of 12, that decision was made. And at the age of 13, they were bar mitzvahed and they started that education to be an adult. If they didn't go on to yeshiva school, they weren't recognized by the priests and the rabbis and the teachers as academically skilled. They went home to learn a craft, a trade from their father. They were apprenticed to their father or an uncle or someone who would take them under his wing and teach them a life skill with which they could support a family. Jesus is in his last year of schooling, probably the spring of that last year. So very near the end of his public schooling, it's almost time for the shift to school or, or learning a trade. Now we don't know if that decision had yet been made. We don't know when or how that decision was ever made in Jesus' life. So this is our picture of where Jesus belongs for the rest of his education. 
And at 12, he goes with his family to the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. And when the festival is over, verse 43 tells us, and this is a very important factoid. Now, the festival is over. The Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday festival is past. Now it's Sunday or Monday. It's time to go home. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. You understand what that says, right? He did it on purpose. He stayed of his own will, on purpose. He let his parents go home while he hung back in Jerusalem. Where did he stay? We don't know. There are quarters in the temple where guests and and travelers and the needy can stay. Maybe he stayed there. Maybe he stayed in the street. Maybe he found a place to hide. We don't know. What we can discern from this verse is he did it on purpose. He wasn't lost. He let his parents go home without him. And he stayed in Jerusalem. They, the verse tells us, were unaware that he wasn't with the group. Now, remember, they're traveling with family and friends. The scripture already told us that. They've left Nazareth with a group of their friends and their family, cousins, uncles, aunts, neighbors, friends, people they know well. It's not a big town. They've traveled as a group, all the kids playing together, all the kids hanging out together. You know how seventh grade kids are. Hey, mom, dad, can I go stay with the boys? Sure, just stay with the group, son. Right? They're going to spend the night together. They're going to camp together. It's going to be fine. So his parents aren't worried. Son, we're about to leave. Stay with the group. Okay, mom. Okay, dad. They assume he's with the boys. And they go north towards Nazareth. Probably when they stop for the first night. They've traveled all day. They stop for the first night and they're starting to sort the kids amongst the families and there's no Jesus. He's not there. Now the scripture says they turned around and went back. Probably not that night. It would not have been safe to travel the two of them through the night. And even if a couple of friends accompanied them, not safe. They probably spent the night wherever they were. One worrisome, anxious night. Where is the boy? And then they return to look for him. When they did not find him, verse 45, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him after three days. Now that's probably all three days. The day of travel, the day back, and a day of searching. But the way it's written, it could mean after searching for three days, they found him. So it it might be five days. It might be the day out, the day back, and three days of searching. But it's at least three days total. A day out, a day to travel back, and a day of searching. They found him in the temple courts. Where was he? Sitting among the teachers. In the biblical language, sitting 
with a group of people is identifying with them. Uh, there's a psalm that says, blessed is he who does not sit among the scoffers, right? To sit among is to be one of, to participate with, to fit with, to belong to. And they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, not sitting at the teacher's feet, not sitting before the teachers, sitting with the teachers. He would only be among the teachers if he were invited to be among the teachers. They have invited him to sit with them and talk to them and converse with them about the things of the law and the things of God. He is doing two things. Number one, verse 45 tells us, or verse 46 tells us, he's listening to them. Because you have to listen in order to understand people. So he's not just teaching them. He's absorbing what they know, what their perspective is, what they teach. He's listening to it. And then what's the second thing he's doing? He is asking them questions. Now, from a Western perspective, you and I think that that's what students do, right? They, they don't know something. They ask questions. That's not the perspective for a Jewish person. Kids don't ask questions. They get asked the question. And there's only one proper response when you are asked a question by a teacher. And you know what it is. You just don't know that you know. <laughs> the teacher, the rabbi, asks a question. He will quote the scripture and then he will ask a question. What is the purpose of the donkey talking in the story of Balaam? And if you're a student who doesn't know the answer and the answer is pat, the answer is trained into you, if you don't know it yet, your only proper response is, only you know, sir. Or, you know, sir, it's an invitation for the teacher then to teach you the meaning of the talking donkey in the story of Balaam. So students don't ask questions. They say, you know, sir, and they give the rabbi the permission to then teach them the purpose of what's there. They don't ask questions. The scholar asks the question as a teaching device. The expert asks the question. Uh, example from the book of Daniel and the story of the dry bones. Daniel says, And the Spirit took me into a valley covered with dry, bleached bones. And the guide, the angel, the accompanier, the, accompanier, the guide said to me, Son of man, can these dry bones live again? And I said, Only you know, Lord. He asks the angel, or God, it's the angel of the Lord. And so in, in Jewish thought, you're to understand that it's God who is accompanying Daniel in this vision. Uh, in, in contemporary Christian thought, there are a lot of people who believe that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament represents Christ. I'm not sure they're not right. At any rate, 
The teacher asks the student the question, can these dry bones live again? And Daniel gives the answer of a child at yeshiva school, only you know. And then God shows him the resurrection of the dry bones, the resurrection, the healing of Israel. See, that's how this process works. The teacher asks and the student says, only you know. They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions as though they were his students. And, and the fact that he's sitting among them means they're comfortable with this process. He is asking them things that, that force them to think in new ways. He was doing this at the age of 12. Now you know, when he shows back up on the scene, Nicodemus comes to him and says, Rabbi, there are a lot of us who are trying to struggle with, you know, with what you're saying. And Jesus teaches him. And Nicodemus asks him a question. Can a man be born again once he is old? Can he return to the womb? And Jesus says, you don't understand. <laughs> you see, from the age of 12, the Pharisees, the teachers, they all knew that he could do this, that he was this way. And when he comes back on the scene at 30, 31, they try to understand what he's doing because he, he fascinates them. Everyone, verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Where did he get this knowledge? When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Here he sits, their son, who has helped his dad in the carpentry shop and played with the other boys and is like any 12-year-old boy, probably building stuff and breaking stuff. And here he sits with the most learned men in their culture, asking them questions, debating the finer points of the law with them, talking to them about the nature of God himself. Now, notice that his mother's response to this is not, wow, where'd you learn these things? His mother's response to him isn't, son, we're so proud of you. His mother pulls him aside and says, son, why have you treated us like this? It tells you that what he did, he did on purpose. <laughs> she knows that he's done this on purpose to get to stay where he didn't have permission to be so that he could talk to the teachers, so that he could learn more about God. Now listen to what she says. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Notice that father in this sentence has a small f. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. His response. Why were you searching for me? 
didn't you know I would have to be in my, capital F, father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And most of our lives, we've missed it as well. What is he saying to them? Son, why would you treat us this way? Your father and I have been searching for you going crazy. Why were you searching? Did you not know I would have to be in my father's house? Same word, different context, different meaning. He is at the age of 12 telling you he understands. You've raised me. You're my parents. I love you. I have a different father. I have a higher priority. I have a higher calling. I have a higher purpose. I have a mission on this earth. And I will have to be about it. Some versions of this text, depending on your translation, say, didn't you know I would have to be about my father's business? Exactly the same words, exactly the same meaning. To the Jew, the house is the business. I will have to be about the business of my father's house. Makes sense, right? It's the same. Didn't you know I would have to be doing the work of my father? You could read it that way too. Don't you understand I have a higher calling? Now, he's not saying that Joseph isn't his father. He's saying he has a father whose whose business is more important than walking back to Nazareth. It's a mildly rebellious thing to say. And so Luke and Mary both want you to know the next verse. Then he went back to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, submitted himself to them, never again disobeyed them as a child. Interesting, isn't it? He went back to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother, but, but, whenever you see the word but in scripture, it's very important. It means that something important follows. Usually means that God is at work. Who was God at work in right here? God was at work in his mother. He went back to Nazareth and was obedient to them, but but his mother pondered all these things and treasured them in her heart. She examined them. She turned them over and over. The first time it said this was when the angel Gabriel appeared to her and said, you're going to have a son. And Mary stores that information away in her heart. The shepherds come, the magi come. He gets baptized in the temple courts. And now here, one more thing. The last thing that the Bible says she stored it in her heart. There's going to come a day when she will need the assurance of these events from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. There's going to come a day when her faith, 
will depend on all these things. When what he teaches will resonate with her more than anyone else. None of the disciples are here. They're not even, they may not even be born at this time. Mary is going to walk with him through his entire life and hear his teaching and hear these same teachers argue against him or struggle to understand what he's saying. One of these teachers, Nicodemus, is going to be there to help prepare him for his burial. And Mary is going to remember this moment. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He grew up to be a fine-looking man, a wise man, and in favor with God and man. Who would know that he grew in favor with God? Only his mother. Want to make a connection here? Who is it? that asks him to do his first miracle, his mother. Remember in the Gospel of John, the wedding of Cana in Galilee, they run out of wine, and she comes to him and says, son, they're out of wine. Because she knows he can do something about it. I want so desperately to know what he's done as a child, as a young man, out of the view of anybody but her, that she knows that he has the power to fix that issue. It's one of the things I, I can't wait to get to heaven and find out. But she knows. How does she know? Because she's watched him. She's stored these things in her heart and she's, she's thought about them and she's treasured them. And he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. She knows that. She tells Luke, more and more, I could see God's favor on that child and with men. Those who enjoy God's favor also enjoy men's favor. Those who would represent God will be attractive to men and women. It's not, it's not godly to be, to be mean, to be divisive to not be attractive to others, to not say the things and live the things that other people say. How do you do that? I want that. That's the kind of person that Jesus was at the age of 12 and at the age of 30. It's the kind of person you and I are called to be. I wished you a Merry Christmas this year, M-A-R-Y. Now, for the coming year, I wish you wisdom, stature, favor with God and with men. Go. As Lent approaches, go. Walk with Christ to the cross and bring others with you.